David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. All right, so we're in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel and we are introduced to King David. So why is he such a significant guy? Uh, In fact, more pages are dedicated to telling his story than any other single person in the Bible apart from Jesus, uh, which makes him the most prolific character in the Old Testament by a long way. And uh, even though the New Testament was written more than a millennia after he reigned, he's mentioned more than 50 times in the New Testament as well. Jesus and his church are repeatedly said to be of David, son of David, seed of David, house of David, the mercies of David. Um, so Jesus' claim to be descended from, uh, from David are, to the New Testament writers, something, there's something very, very specific and significant about the importance of this. Um, that somehow the power of Jesus and what he was bringing was inextricably linked to this man. Uh, which is a point that goes right to our understanding of the Old Testament. And I think it's safe to say that we haven't all always been taught very well on the Old Testament. So if this isn't what you have experienced, simply ignore me. Um, But if you have, it may be that this experience has added up to more or less the idea that the Old Testament was kind of the plan A of sort of the the wrathy and vengey side of God, who was constantly mad and disappointed at these ones that he's chosen, always getting it wrong. And there may well be really valid and important sort of moralistic value in these fable-like stories that we know from the Old Testament. Um, And we can glean a lot from those. But thank God that we have the New Testament, that we have Jesus, so that we don't need to worry about the wrathy side of God anymore. Actually, we miss something of grave importance when we read these, yes, sometimes very difficult accounts that way, namely, the power and the person of Jesus who was pointed to all the way along and the transformative and powerful impact of these writings when we read them in the correct way. So let's do it. Uh, The narrative arc of the story up until this point happens to be about the arc. Um, So in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, it's all been centered about God telling his people essentially that he is not their trophy. So these are the ones who've been led through tremendous danger and provision and got into the promised land. um, But they seem to now have forgotten Uh, what following God and being his people looks like during this uh, period of the judges that we've heard about in the first couple of weeks. So the people went to Samuel the prophet and they asked him for the king that they had been promised to request, which God grants in Saul. But he warns them they'll only benefit from a humble and faithful king, otherwise turmoil would ensue as it does, as Raoul taught on last week. The entirely humanly suitable Jason Momoa-esque candidate, perfect for the job, Saul, is chosen, and it doesn't go very well. 
So immediately to where we're picking up from this morning, immediately prior to where we're picking up from, um, he'd, Saul had been given specific instruction to go and wipe out the Amalekites, not to leave a single survivor, including their sheep and cattle. And yes, that does sound very like a wrathy and vengeful God, doesn't it? But the point actually of this is that the Amalekites were brutal people themselves. They were horribly oppressive and violent and guilty of all sorts of atrocities. So God's instruction to Saul was about putting an end to this, but the very, very important piece for us is that God's instruction to Saul was for him to do this in a way that was not like all other kings, all other kings who take hostages and enslave them and who'd capture their livestock and profit from it. God's instruction was for him not to win the victory the way all other kings would do it. Even the kings who would sometimes say that they're going to war for justice but end up there for wealth and power, the one who history remembers again and again and again. God did not want another imperialistic victory. He wanted a just one. And what did Saul do? Of course, he went and won the battle and then took the prisoners and the livestock and became guilty of exactly the same things that the Amalekites were being punished for. So Saul has become a worldly king, like all other worldly kings, taking power for himself. And this is what Samuel the prophet is grieving at the start of our story, the origin story of King David, today in chapter 16. And Ben is going to come and read it to us. So this is 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen you, one of his sons, to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thanks, Ben. So imagine you're Jesse. 
you're a pretty big deal. You're known about in these parts. You've got a lot of land, you've got a lot of wives, you've got a lot of kids. And Samuel the prophet arrives at your house with his horn of oil and a heifer to sacrifice and tells you he's there to invite you and your sons to join him in this sacrifice. So you get your seven best sons and you line them up. <clears throat> There's a funny, almost non sequitur detail in the narrative of this that I... Um, it's not really what the talk's about, but I just find it very interesting because this is probably the bit that, from verse 7 that we know most about this story. Um, when Samuel assumes that it will be the most eligible, handsome, tall, and oldest son, Eliab, God hears his thoughts and seems to roll his, roll his eyes a bit as he says, the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I've heard this one a lot, haven't we, I suspect? So what we think running through all of the other brothers, is that when David finally arrives fresh from the fields, probably, you know, a bit stinky and slightly wild because he's been out there, that he's going to be a bit of a minger, don't we? I think that might be an English term. It might not stack here. What's the American for a minger? Somebody who's distinctly unattractive. <laughs> we think that because this is the way the story, this is the narrative, is, is, you know, it's led to get us to expect... David's going to come in and be very, very ugly. But that's not what happens. When David's brought in, we're told he's glowing in good health. Ruddy is the word, uh, word in older translations, which is definitely a word we need to bring back. From uh, spending his life out in the field, he's, you know, he's, he's strong, he's muscular, and he's good-looking too. And we're not actually told anything about his character at all. Nothing about the inner person that God has told us that he chooses to look at. And David will go on, as we shall find out, to, go on, uh, to manifest character defects as least as great as Saul's. God says David's physical appearance is irrelevant, and yet his heart isn't mentioned. His looks are. So evolutionary biologists tell us that there are two reasons that we can't help as a species but to be attracted to and concerned with beauty. One is our ineluctable physical urge to procreate and the links that many of the world's classic beauty standards have to perceptions of virility. So we find certain qualities attractive and they attract us to mate. And I do know how insensitive this can sound to our 21st century ears today. Not all of us are attracted to partners with whom we can mate. And of those of us who are, not all of us are interested in procreation. I don't mean to be insensitive or turn deaf to these facts. I'm simply talking about how we have survived as a species and how certain of our traits, namely our love of beauty, has been a force to keep us going. The second reason that we are wired as humans to be drawn to beauty is that it reminds us of our youth. We know we're mortal and we don't like it and we never have. We may be, of all times and places in the history of the world, living in the absolute zenith of cultural and sociological worship of beauty and the longevity of it and the potential solutions to dealing with the problem of it fading. But this is not a new thing. This has always been a human drive because it speaks to the very things that we're made for. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, 
my soul, who satisfies your desires with good, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Uh, the thing with eagles is that despite being the strongest, most majestic, longest living of all birds, they go through a regular molting process, resulting in the complete renewal of their plumage. So throughout their life, over and over again, they have the appearance of being new and young. So it's quite an interesting claim that the psalmist is making, isn't it? Your humanity yearns for youth, and the Lord promises to renew it. As a matter of evolutionary science, and according to the scriptures, we were made in God's image to connect with each other, to love each other, to be motivated by the love and replication of the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and made in his image, we're made to live forever. I don't think, perhaps in ways that this verse has been quoted, I don't think that God abhors our human, uh, our human urges to appreciate physical beauty and to flee from our mortality. I think they're quite godly things. I think, however, for all of us, it's just a case of accepting where we are and that those urges are both godly and distorted that our work, this side of heaven, will be to remember that the distortions are never going to go away and that aging is certainly not avoidable. But simply that the beauty of a human heart will always be more important to God than the beauty of anything on the outside. All right, so back to verse 10 and the lineup of seven sons, seven being the number of perfect completion. Jesse's line is complete, without David even being there. He's out in the field protecting the family herd from predators, and he's not even given a shot by his father to be at the ceremony. I have pondered over the last few days, fresh from the devastation of last week's tragically predictable succession series finale, how much this hurt David that he wasn't included by Jesse, that he'd probably never been included, that how much he'd been shaped by being hijo numero ocho, by the treatment that he'd always received as the least important, least included, least valued of the brothers. I wonder if David had tried any of those tactics, any bargaining to get his dad to notice him. Or do you think he just accepted that he wasn't serious people? I promise I'm going to stop with the succession references. It's, it's nothing more boring than somebody who doesn't understand that niche, you know, cultural references aren't important to everyone. I know this because I've, it's all I've talked about to anyone all week, and at least half the people that I've talked to haven't watched it and don't know what I'm talking about. I'm generally genuinely convinced that what is so magical about the premise of that show, if we forget the writing, forget the uh, performance, chemistry, and the dazzlingly creative use of swear words, um, is that it, at its core, it's an examination of what happens to entirely unextraordinary people who have literally everything, every privilege and opportunity they could ever want, apart from any love or endorsement from their parents. My guess with David is that he just accepted this. 
I don't think for him there was any massive wounding or bitterness. The same way, actually, I don't think when we read these stories and we think about what women were feeling, like the daughters aren't even mentioned, they're not even part of this story. I don't think women would have felt the way that we feel when we read these stories. The number of the names of women who are included, included in Old Testament accounts is actually extraordinary given their value in this era, given their lot in life. I think, you know, I think most people just accepted this was how the world works, but they've repeatedly shown that their God works differently. I think that David is just out in the field, knowing his place, doing his bit for the good of the tribe. <coughs> Patrilineal primogeniture, the right of the firstborn son to inherit the father's entire estate, was just simply the way of the ancient world. The oldest son gets all the assets and the best wives. It's just how it was. It's what was expected when we hear these stories for the oldest brother to dominate. And it not being the case in Jesse's lineup is actually not a surprise in the pattern of these ancient stories in the Hebrew Bible because there is a pattern of overturning uh, primogeniture. It happens over and over and over again in the stories of the people of God. If you think about Joseph, if you think about Jacob, Isaac, and Cain, the firstborn firstborn, who sets up this scriptural pattern of the world order being upset right from the get-go. <clears throat> Cain, whose name means to create, whose role as worker of the ground, given that his father's role was the same, means that he had been given time, instruction, guidance, mentorship. He is the privileged heir. And he lost out to Abel, whose name means empty or in vain, and who was subjected to a life just like David, offending for himself as a shepherd in the dangerous, untamed, wild spaces with no mentor or instruction. And in this story, for entirely unexplained reasons, God favors Abel's sacrifice and Cain murders him in jealous fury. This is like story number two in the whole of the Bible, overturning the natural and expected and fair worldly order things, seems to have some, something of significant fundamental importance to God and his people's story. Tales of sibling rivalry take us to places most of us can relate to, I think. Even if we don't have siblings, I'm sure there is something that every single one of us can hum along to in the, any juxtapositional song of privilege, expectant older brother versus hardworking or wily downtrodden underdog. There seems to be something innate, I think, something to the very core of our humanity that urges us to assess ourselves who we are and what we've been given most scrupulously in relation, to, sorry, in relation to those who are closest to us. If you don't believe me, just sit down any child, any child, give them a bowl and put an enormous amount of ice cream in it. And then put another child next to them, give them a bowl and just put a little bit more ice cream in that bowl and see what happens. I have banned the phrase, it's not fair, from my house. My ban has had no effect. 
I have even said, if anyone says it, I'm just going to scream. And that didn't do it. So I think my only solution from here is perhaps getting it tattooed across my forehead and see if that, I don't know, the trauma of that just stops them doing it. Our very consciousness seems to lead us to comparison. Comparison, by the way, linked to unhappiness in every measurable metric that psychologists have ever found. You can take this from me, mother of three daughters quite close in age, one of five sisters. I'm number two of five girls quite close in age. I love my sisters, every single one of them more than I can express. I am blessed beyond measure to have such strong and kind and fiercely loyal and loving women in my life. And yet, I think as long as I live, I will be fighting the pain that comparing myself and my path to theirs still causes me. They are all horribly clever and accomplished and beautiful, so as well as being an incredible uh, blessing, they're also a dreadful affliction. So you can take this from me, comparer extraordinaire, this is our enemy's best tactic to take us out. And can you hear me say to you this morning, if this is something you know you do, you've just got to stop. There is no shortage in God's economy. Because he favors one does not mean he doesn't favor you. It doesn't work like this. What he's doing in your life is what's important, not what he's doing in someone else's. They have no bearing on each other. Be ruthless with your thoughts. Take them captive, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And I would say hold them hostage and do it by the throat when it comes to thoughts of comparison. This is not who you are. This is not how it works in God's kingdom. Comparison is nothing but a thief. And we miss what's happening right in front of us when our eyes are faced this way on the size of the bowl of ice cream that our neighbor has. I am increasingly convinced that God has no interest in what we think is fair. What he is saying to you always is look at what I'm doing for you. Working all things together for your good for you. So stop being distracted and discouraged. You have not been forgotten. You will not be overlooked. None of us are the older brother in these stories. Jesus worked all of this primogeniture of overturning together masterfully in the parable that he tells that starts, a man had two sons. The prodigal son is a story about how we are all the youngest brother, the one who went astray, and he get welcome back and have rings put on our fingers and cloaks put on our back. to anyone feeling the cold of the wilderness this morning, to anyone feeling that you're sort of in that place of, of the waiting and the pain and the where is God and what is he doing and what have I missed? Remember that the wilderness in this story was David's training ground. He could never have known what was coming after this, defeating a giant, leading his people to their destiny, it would actually for him be years before the king thing came together and happened. But it was in the wilderness that God readied David for his plan. It is when the accolade and the prize and the worldly status is gone, 
stripped away or it's never been there to begin with, that we find this fertile soil of opportunity to let Jesus show us who we really are. He always works in wilderness times because these are the times that we see that his kingdom works by other rules. If this is where you find yourself today, know that Jesus is there. He is ready. Drawing nearest to you in this state, ready to heal, ready to adopt, ready to do all this work because he is the one that does the work, ready to anoint you. So let's go back to it, verse 12. The Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Anoint in Hebrew is from mashak, from where we get the English word meaning Messiah and the Greek word Christos. And what is extraordinary about David over the course of his life and reign, as we shall go on to see, is not actually his character. He went on to manifest major flaws in that. What is extraordinary about David is his faithfulness. He never turned to other gods because he had known his God when he had nothing, and now he was king. And he knew that it was his God who had taken him there. He didn't take his kingly status and make it his own, unlike all the other kings that have ever been. And just like the one whose line as king of Israel he started. Because this is the thing. This is the thing about the Old Testament. These stories, they were really all about Jesus all along. The point of the law was that Jesus was the only one who could ever keep it. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the ceremony. He's the manna, the water, and the good shepherd. It was always about him and what he was going to do. Abraham, who left his home to follow God's plan, Isaac, who lay on the altar, Joseph, who sat at the right hand of the king, Esther, who risked it all for her people. These stories are the shadows of what was to come in Jesus. We just can't always see it. So Samuel does this anointing ceremony here in the family room of the house. And David is anointed as the true king of Israel, this shepherd boy, ruddy from the fields, with no fanfare, no crowd, and not many people are going to know about it for many years to come. When Samuel had anointed Saul, he did it with a small vial or a flask, but God told Samuel to bring a hornful, a ram's horn, so it's a pretty big thing, full of oil, And what he would have done, he would have poured it out on his head as his whole family looked on. And the oil would have saturated him. It would have saturated his hair. It would have gone through his clothes. It would have dripped down. Absolutely everything. It says in verse 13 that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day. Just like the stories of the Old Testament were a shadow of what was to come in Jesus The spirit in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come for all of us. Poured out. The spirit is poured out on us. We are to be drenched in it. 
all of us. I wonder if Tavri and the band could come back up as we prepare to end. We do this at the end of every service. And for some of us, it's our favorite bits. And for some of us, it's just really weird, and I get it. The Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, is and was always what this was about. It is by his presence, it is by being drenched in his presence that we, like the mere human, the, the mortals that we are, that we leak, like vessels full of holes, we leak it. So it's not just a case of, of course, I've got the Spirit. I'm a Christian. I was filled with the Spirit on that day. We must come and receive it and receive it and receive it and receive it because none of this is possible without him. To those of us who feel like we're in the wilderness, you can hear really lovely things like, you know, the things that we love to say, like God's going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He's going to turn your mourning into dancing. They're fantastic things to cling to. It does really good things when we speak these words over ourselves. But the Spirit of God can make that alive for you. The Spirit of God can meet you in power and make that a fundamental truth that even as you stay in the wilderness can be the thing that leads you through it. That also, for those of us who are up for the serious work of this, can mean that we still see the wilderness times not as punitive, not as things that we desperately need to escape from, not of things, experiences that we need to be ashamed of, but as opportunities. Because in these times, he can do the most important work. In these times, we can experience the full breadth of our humanity means being like Jesus in that these experiences are holy too. It's, it's an epoch-changing thing to realize that sadness is holy that seeing Jesus in grief, meeting him in your grief, you are having a holy experience of what it is to be a human in this world. To know that in times of waiting, Jesus is with you in those times of waiting because he has experienced waiting. Waiting like none of us can ever even imagine. To those of us who actually for reasons that are understandable, feel more like Eliab's and Saul's this morning, who have had a lot of worldly blessing. Worldly blessing isn't itself problematic. It's what we do with it. Saul becomes a king after he's anointed and is a king like other worldly kings, and he takes the spoils for himself. The whole message of David is what it is to take kingly status and not make it our own. And again, the only way we can do this is by the Spirit. It's too difficult. There's a reason that in times of revival, if you've ever read around about revival, there is a reason that when the Spirit is poured out in that much power, those moments are marked by generosity and justice like almost no other times in human history. Because the people with the kingly power to do anything about it have met the one true God who wants them to do the right thing with their kingly status. 
and to be a king like he orders them. It is the spirit that does this. It will always be the spirit that does this. So can I invite you now to stand? And can I invite you now as we sing this song, again, the one that we were singing the words of earlier. Give me vision to see things like you do. I'd encourage you to pray that now. If you want to close your eyes and open your hands, this is what we do, it's just a gesture of being open. Give me vision to see things like you do. Give me vision to see myself like you do. Give me vision to hear the words of my father for me, his child.